I'm Frankie Wolf, and this is Kick-Ass Kentucky Women Writers, where we chat each month with some of the most amazing women writing all across Kentucky. Today we're talking to Savannah Sipple, a writer from Beattyville whose poems and short stories have recently been published in Appalachian Heritage, the Pikeville Review, Southern Indiana Review, and Still the Journal. Savannah's work also appears in the anthologies Appalachian Now, Short Stories of Contemporary Appalachia from Bottom Dog Press, and in If You Can Hear This, Poems and Protest of an American Inauguration, which is fresh off the presses from Sibling Rivalry Press. Savannah is also the co-owner of Briar Books, Lexington's newest independent bookseller. Welcome to our show, Savannah. Thank you for having me, Frankie. Let's start with a reading. Since there's really no escaping the latest news about the Trump administration, how about something political? Okay, so this poem was published in an anthology by Sibling Rivalry Press. The anthology is, if you can hear this, Poems in Protest of an American Inauguration. It's available from Sibling Rivalry on their website. You can download a PDF or purchase a copy. And the poem is titled, When Those Who Have the Power Start to Lose It, They Panic. They rut young girls. They come to play. They carry their wallets in front pockets, checkbooks, and glove boxes. Money, no money. They drink beer, they drink bourbon. She shouldn't have been drinking. They say shit like boys will be boys and you have to consider his side of the story. They mean his side of the story is the only one that matters. There's two sides. Girls should leave legs open and mouth shut. Go to church and dress up. What was she wearing? They four-wheel on weekends, they ride in golf carts, in Ubers, on bicycles. They get elected president. They want their girls tough enough to ride shotgun, limber enough to stretch across back seats, across laps, against doors, in back alleys, behind dumpsters. She was out too late. They want girls sober enough to see, drunk enough to see double, two sides, to moan, no sounds like yes to their ears. No sounds like yes to their ears. Don't tell me no. She had a mouth on her. Unless we're talking about how 20 minutes might ruin the rest of their lives, then no, wait, we don't deserve this. There are two sides. Listen to me. They don't fuck up, do they? They get up, pay $25 million, walk away. She shouldn't have even been there. Hmm. Is this a new poem that you wrote specifically for this? It's a poem that I had been sort of working on in terms of the, the context of the double standard between men and women. And then everything with the election and watching the debates and seeing the way that Hillary Clinton was held to a standard that no other politician has ever been held to, including her opponent, really frustrated me in a way that I had no idea how to cope with. And the further along we got in the debates, the more I just started to feel like this is just a televised version of what women go through every day. This double standard and the way he would accuse her of things that were ridiculous and he would talk over her and that was acceptable for some reason and so I think all of that sort of 
fueled the poem into completion. And Sibling Rivalry put out the call for poems and protests. And so I thought, well, um, it's not 100% just about the inauguration, but it really is. So, Yeah, the, the focus on her appearance pretty much drove me crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I had a lot of conversations with people who were not conservative people, mm-hmm. but would talk about how much her suits cost. Yeah. And I was like, well, what about the supposed billionaire? How much do you think his suits cost? Precisely. Why aren't you asking that question? Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, and you have that line in there, you know, why was she dressed like that? Isn't that the line? What was she wearing? What was she wearing? I mean, the, the concern with what we put on every day and what that says about our character. People justify it. And we victim blame in a way that blows my mind. And so feels like we made so much progress. And then we took a rocket back 100 years. <laughs> it does feel like that. So it's frustrating. So it's not new for people working in literature to be a part of the counterculture, to create provocative works mm-hmm. or you know, explicitly political works to sort of drive social change. What I saw since this election is just like nothing I've seen in my you know four decades on this planet. It seems like the writers at least here locally, but I know that nationally this is happening too. There's this real effort to get together and make this movement happen. Mm -hmm. And this podcast actually was born out of that. My role as an artist was to figure out how to give women a voice. Yeah. Um, Can you talk about how you see your role in that movement that's happening? One of the things that I have always felt very strongly about um, in terms of my role as a writer for me, the, the art itself comes first, but I also feel strongly that it's important for artists to take a role in getting stories out there. And because I come from a region that is stereotyped and marginalized, it's been important for me to get those stories out there in a way that doesn't play in a stereotype or that captures all sides of what it's like to be Appalachian. And I spent a fair amount of time trying to write other people's stories and trying to capture what I thought were the best and worst parts of Appalachia through persona. And one of the things that I learned um, and sort of came to the realization of is my experience is just as valid as any other story I would want to tell and deserves to be told. And that doesn't mean that everyone in the world will listen and love it, but it's brought me to a new level in my own writing. But it's also, I think, sort of helps me understand my role a little bit more. Um, It makes it a little more personal in a way that it wasn't before. Um, I've always been really passionate about supporting women and women's voices being heard and so I think to me that's hugely important. It's also really important that there are queer voices represented and the thing that a lot of people tend to dismiss about Appalachia, they see us as, or even Kentucky, um, or even just being female, you know, they see you a certain way and I want to change that and show just how complex every person is. And even in our complexities, there are ways that we can all connect, even with people that we don't understand. And 
you know, I was really fascinated in March with your Women's History Month project you had going on. This call you had um, on every post, it's Women's History Month. I encourage all women to share their stories, good, bad, in between, as a way to celebrate ourselves. No need to offer praise or affirmation or anything else. Share your experiences on this post or even on your own wall. Let's get more women in conversation about their experiences. And so you had all these posts and some were little bits of you, mm -hmm. you know, from your history, your herstory, yeah. so to speak, <laughs> uh, as well as observations and insights that you gathered. What prompted you to do this and what kind of responses did you get from people? And did you expect what you got or were you surprised? The idea sort of hit me, I think, a few, probably maybe a week or less before March started. So I was thinking why women are dismissed by both men and other women. And I think a huge part of the problem is we don't talk enough about what our experiences are, good or bad, um, in any range of what that scale could be. And so I thought, well, what could I do to encourage conversation and to get people talking about what they've experienced? And I thought, well, I could post a question every day or... I don't know, um, post a poem or all this other stuff. But I think to talk about even our best experiences, sometimes it puts us in a vulnerable place. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to want other people to talk about what they've been through, then I should at least be willing to do the same. And so I thought, well, I will post just something brief every day and then try to get other women to do to do the same. You know, I didn't have a whole lot of expectations going into it because I thought, we'll see what happens, and maybe it will just encourage. If even if they don't share on social media, maybe they'll share it with share it with people, the other people in their lives. Like, I I really was not wanting people to like say, oh, we love you or whatever else, and it's wonderful that they do that. And <clears throat> of course, I'm happy to hear that but um I really just wanted people to talk and so the funny thing that happened that I thought well I thought was funny I would post like on my Facebook or my Twitter account and people would respond on my thread on Facebook and I'm like oh this is great and then I'm like why don't you post it on your wall too <laughs> <laughs> to sort of so more people will see it mm -hmm. and so um that was interesting to sort of see but, but that also is a kind of vulnerability. You know, it's one thing for me to respond to a friend whose page may or may not be available to the public or whatever else, although I know everything's not really private, but it's a whole other thing for me to make a statement on my page. Mm -hmm. And so it was really eye-opening to see the range of women who responded, and men for that matter, but their ages, their experiences, I enjoyed doing it. I had a hard time coming up with the exact experiences I wanted to share. Um, I wanted to have a balance between, you know, positive and negative, funny and serious, um, and all this stuff. And so that was a little bit of a challenge. Um, I think there was one day where I was just like, I just don't have a story today. And that was fine. But um, I, I think it's something I would like to continue. Um, it's something I've thought about doing, like, once a week or something, but it was it was really interesting to see the way people responded. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. So in that same vein, um, 
you know, I heard you read How to Debone a Woman a while ago, and it's just stuck with me. Mm -hmm. It's one of those um, really visceral, physical images, Mm -hmm. you know, and as someone who can take apart a large animal with a knife, (laughs) I can really picture this. Mm -hmm. You know, I know how those joints look, and so, like, there's a truth to that. There's a realism to that even when you're working in metaphor that I really appreciated, which is why it stuck with me. And the other thing that really stuck with me is how fear and anger get tangled up. Mm -hmm. And that's not something I've ever really been able to articulate in any kind of writing, but it's definitely something I felt, you know, as a woman, as a child. Mm -hmm. So could you read that poem and then talk about why you wrote it? How to debone a woman. Feel for her joints, those places where she savors where she's most tender. Hold her in your lap, in bed. Tuck yourself between the bones of her love, her hungry trust. Make her think you will shield her, wrap her in the skin of you. When she isn't looking, raise your voice, a knife. Clench her wings. Make a quick cut of tendon, slice her ligament. Cut the tip so she can't escape. Jerk her arms. Knock her on her back. Turn. Apologize. Apologize. Make nice. Whatever she wants. Turn. Pull her legs away from the rest of her. Tell her she can't. She'll never. Hear joints separate in the way she hesitates. The quiet way she approaches you. You see her breastbone, cut her there. Watch her kill when you peel meat from rib. Watch her cry when you scream. See her shrink. Wrench her apart, wrench her apart. Each swift pop squawks it's her fault. But one of the things that I had been working on and it was, it's sort of a theme in the main in my manuscript, but how to marry uh, Appalachian images with the Appalachian experience without playing into stereotype, and so violence and domestic violence, and particularly, is a theme and something I address in my book. And so I was trying to think of how to talk about it without just describing a scene of domestic violence, and so. One thing that is a huge part of my Appalachian heritage and my family tradition is cooking and canning, which I know is true for a lot of Appalachians, but I was thinking about some of the more popular meals and, you know, things that we cook, and I was thinking about chicken and dumplings is a huge thing, Mm -hmm. and it's something that can be time-consuming to make, especially if you... um, you know, debone the chicken yourself and all that. And so I started thinking about, you know, some of the things we do, like not just killing a hen, but deboning a hen when you cook it. That's a violent sort of thing, even though it's already dead. But um, so I've sort of started trying to use cooking language to talk about violence and then started trying to use um, cooking language involved with chicken and dumplings and then it sort of evolved into the act of the chicken like getting the chicken meat off the bone and the the different parts apart and so 
it just sort of grew from there. Yeah. Yeah, the imagery is really strong for me in that one. Um, I hadn't really thought about, like, how violent it is to debone a chicken, even though I've done it a million times. Yeah. But most of the time when I'm making chicken soup or chicken and dumpling, I just throw all the parts in there and I debone <laughs> it with my fingers so I can get all the good stuff off the bones uh-huh. before I toss them out. Yeah. But, you know, part of the Appalachian culture, you know, food, is, I mean, it is in the South in general, mm-hmm. um, being this sort of warm center of family and community. Mm-hmm. And to use that in a different way, I thought was really interesting. Food brings people together in builds community whether it's your family or anyone else but then there are also in terms of a meal you know you don't always think about the preparation that goes into it Mm -hmm. and so there are I guess hidden parts of it and so it's sort of true like that when we think about domestic violence you know what we see is one version and we don't see what takes place beforehand or afterwards Mm -hmm. and so I just, um, I don't know, I really wanted to try to capture not just the violence of it, but also, like, just how it's deconstructed. Like, it tears, it's methodical, and it tears a woman down piece by piece. And so, you know, we think about why do women stay or why do they go back, and that's why. It's because it it gets so ingrained in us and we get so torn down that it's hard to leave or it's hard to reach out or be honest. And most of the time, even when we are honest, people don't believe us. And I don't know, in a lot of ways, I'm I'm always surprised at the number of women who are able to leave because it does have such a lasting effect. Mm-hmm. But I think there's definitely more we can do to support women in those situations. But I wanted to capture that, I think find an Appalachian way to talk about it yeah (laughs) that is (laughs) an Appalachian way to talk about an Appalachian problem right yeah (laughs) well it's not just an Appalachian it's not just an Appalachian problem and it's a problem everywhere but it's also it also is a problem in Appalachia yeah and it affects people that we don't always think it affects and so I think that was what I really want to try and have tried to capture in some of my work. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's complex. And you, other poems that you have come at that from different angles, mm-hmm. um, but still constantly getting that point across about how complex it is. It's not just a physical pain or a mental pain issue, right? There, there are deep cultural, economic, social issues. That, and there's also love, which is this complex nebulous thing you can love your abuser exactly and it makes it tough for people to leave it does make it it makes it a lot harder and it's hard too because there is love there definitely it makes it complicated but I also think too that um, in a lot of places in America especially for certain social classes women are taught this is part of it you don't leave for whatever reason, whether it's religious or it's just not acceptable or you don't feel like you have anyone you can go to. You know, I've known women of an older generation who's, who have, once they were finally able to admit their husbands were abusive, said, I never had the option. I couldn't have gone home. I, I didn't, I don't know what I would have done or where I would have gone. 
I've had old women say to me, that's just part of it, you learn to deal with it. And I can't even imagine that, I mean, and I'm not saying that they're crazy or they're wrong, but it, it shows you just how deep it goes and how ingrained it is in our culture. I think the more that women can talk about it and be honest about what happens, um, and men too for that matter, I think that's when change, that's how change will happen, I think. Yeah. So you were gracious enough to give me a sneak preview of your full length poetry collection. Uh, hopefully it'll be starting its journey toward a local bookstore shelf mm-hmm. soon. And for most people in Appalachia, religion is this deeply embedded part of their cultural traditions and it brings people together. But unfortunately, it's also been a source of pain and exclusion for the people who don't fit into what's expected according to the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is really true among queer folks in Appalachia. Mm-hmm. So whether they've stayed in the region or left it behind, and I'm like one of the few lucky queer kids I know who, who didn't grow up religious in Appalachia, so I didn't walk away with some of the baggage I've seen other people struggle with for years or decades or the rest of their lives. I've seen a lot of different responses in poetry or nonfiction or even fiction sometimes about that struggle. Um, and, you know, what I see a lot is this depiction of Jesus that doesn't match the one that I see in your poems. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's new to me what you're doing there. You know, Jesus comes across as like this bosom buddy mm-hmm. in a way, and he's even a wingman in one of the poems. Um, your one poem, uh, it's at the bar. It starts off, Jesus would take one look at her, suck in air, breathe out, damn, she's cute. Why are you standing there, sis? Go talk to her. Ask her for her number. So now your Jesus is <laughs> vastly unlike what other depictions of Jesus are that we hear from Christian extremists and even lately more moderate Christians because there's this huge political movement in Jesus' name that's creating backlash against those gains that we've made, as you referenced that earlier. You know, marriage equality, fair housing and employment, access to women's health care and all that kind of thing. So how did these Jesus poems evolve for you? So I did grow up in the conservative Christian church. It's it's so odd really because my parents took us to church and but we weren't what I would call over like really devout. My dad was someone who was in and out of church and my mother consistently took us. He when he was going he would go and when he wasn't he wouldn't. And then I went through a phase oddly enough about the time I was 15 or so 14 and 15, where I became very devout. And, you know, growing up, I always knew I was different for whatever reason, and I looked for a way to fit in, and religion offers that. And it became a place where I fit, a place where I belonged, where I had a support system that I felt was genuine for a long time. And, but even then, like, I knew I was different. I just I questioned a lot of things and didn't understand a lot of the practices or the rules or things that you're told to believe and not believe and so even when even when I felt like I had found a place I belonged I also felt like I didn't belong and the older I got the more I started to realize part of that was because I'm a queer woman and that took a while to come to terms with but we're taught this 
version of Jesus and we're taught so many things about Christianity and we get caught up in so many parts of it that distract us from what the focus should be. So part of my coming to terms with who I am as a person and going through this phase of not accepting myself because I believed it was wrong and have been taught it was wrong and then going through this phase of why would I be this way if we're taught that we're you know God creates all of us to be ourselves why am I like this what has happened to make me like this and then also just um trying to sort of reconcile I guess my faith and my who I am just as a basic person and it's interesting I think because I, I don't think I have fully well I feel like I have reconciled it but I know that there are people who um, were part of my life when I was devout in the way they thought I should be devout who have a lot to say about it or would say that I've walked away or backslid or all this other stuff and that's not true but the ba I mean, for me, the most basic tenet of my faith is that we are told to love other people. For the highest commandment is to love the Lord your God. And then the second highest commandment is to love other people. And so if that is true and that is what Jesus practiced and that is what Jesus taught, which is who he was, I mean, that was everything he encompassed. And so if that is true, then how does, what does my relationship with him look like? He's not this stern person who's going to write my name on the chalkboard, you know, <laughs> for breaking this rule or whatever else. And I see faith as being a very personal thing. Um, a lot of people want to involve themselves in other people's faith and I don't think that that's our place. And so I think the best thing we can do for other people is to love them. And so for me, I wanted to sort of turn the idea of what we've been taught about Jesus and who he is and these rules and all that. I wanted to turn it on its head because we've made it so convoluted and so indoctrinated that we forget what's most important. And the big thing is, you know, Coming to the point where I think being who I am is not wrong. Being who I am is not, it's not anyone's business, but it's also, you know, God, God created me as I am. And so God, whoever he or she is, and Jesus, they all know about me being queer and who I'm attracted to or not attracted to or whatever else. So why wouldn't he? support me loving another person and so that's what um i wanted to try to do in the poems although they're not all about you know love but um i think jesus and i do do a lot in those poems but um yeah you go to walmart yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it's just i mean that's i wanted to i wanted to try to break it down to the most basic thing where we should love other people and whatever I think about a person and this is this is hard like like their political belief practices or whatever else you know we're taught to we we should love them you know that doesn't mean that we 
excuse abuse. It doesn't mean that we let corruption run rampant, although it feels like we are in this country, but it means that I see them as a person and not as something I'm supposed to try to control. And I accept them faults and all. And, you know, of course I say all that knowing full and well I fail at that every day. But in terms of... <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> in terms of, you know, looking at the, you know, this relationship with religion and stuff, I just wanted to, I think, turn it on its head and just break it down. This is probably what it comes down to. If I, if I could not come to terms with being who I was with this God then how could I ever be okay with who I am as my like be okay myself or be okay with another person and I know I know there are queer people who've walked away from their faith there are people who don't have that faith or have faith in something else and that's you know that's completely their experience and that's valid and fine I feel like a lot of ways my faith is very complicated too but um because it's also hard to break those, those, those veins of conservative thinking or really, maybe not conservative is the word, but really legalistic kind of thinking run deep. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's been a lot to come to terms with, but it's also, those poems were a lot of fun to write because I, you know, I'm writing about my experiences, but I'm like, okay, if Jesus were here, and if Jesus is this person who, you know, I'm told loves me and accepted people, faults and all, then what would he really do? Because we're probably taught in church that you wouldn't be at the bar to begin with and you sure wouldn't be there with Jesus. <laughs> and so, you know, um, I wanted to try to look at it like, okay, what would he do? We're talking about the complexity of being queer and reconciling that with your faith. And one thing that comes up in your poems is bodily Mm self-harm, you know, especially cutting. Um, And I've seen it in other queer kids who are struggling with things. I've seen it in a wide range of women just because whatever was going on with them. Um, So what advice would you give to young people who are struggling with that impulse? You know, I think... I think people, you know, self-harm, cutting, and um, the different forms that self-harm can take, people often do it, well, they do it for many many reasons. I think it's different for everybody, but a lot of it is a manifestation of trying to either release pain or distract yourself from other types of pain. And so, Especially teenagers, it's really hard. A lot of teenagers have a lot of emotional pain, especially queer kids, that they don't know how to deal with and don't know how to navigate. And a lot of that is because of their age, but they also don't have support systems. And, you know, I think finding someone that you can talk to, of course, is vital. Finding an outlet, whether it's art or sports or even just something like walking or cooking or you know something to work off some of your some of the emotional energy um whether that energy manifests as anxiety or you know hyperactivity or goes into depression even finding an outlet is vital but i think the best form of advice i could say is don't be ashamed of what's happening or what you're feeling 
because people are going to tell you it's something you should be ashamed of. And there's a good chance, you know, people who are harming themselves are part of it could be because they're already ashamed and you don't have to be ashamed. There are people out there who can support you, if not immediately close to you, then online or via the phone. And so um, don't be afraid to reach out to people. So I really can't wait any longer to ask you about Briar Books. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I first heard about this. I was taking my last shopping trip at Morris Books and feeling very dejected. Mm-hmm. And Jay McCoy, your co-owner, um, he was working there, you know, and this was probably just a few days before Wynn closed the doors um, for good. But he told me about your plans and he got me all excited, turned my frown upside down. Uh, We're really lucky in Lexington. We have this great variety of independent booksellers, but you know, Morris was this community space had been built up over the past several years. I saw you tuck into that corner Uh, on occasion. I did that a lot. My writing group met there every week. you know, it's a place I went with my family, and we would just browse and talk to people and meet new people all the time. But when Jay started telling me what you guys were doing, I got excited. There's this opportunity for that kind of community again. Mm-hmm. And on your website, I love this whole imagery of the porch. We choose you to join us on our porch, all of you. There will be a band of heathens putting on a play about queer life in Appalachia while someone chills in a hammock writing poetry and another group gathers to plant a community garden and farmer's market, and another reads the New York Times bestseller list and talks national trends. I'm probably going to be the one that's a heathen in a hammock <laughs> putting on a play about queer life in Appalachia. Uh, but, I mean, that's a porch I want to sit on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you talk about the, the genesis of the bookstore and give an update on the progress? So Jay and I talked about, you know, Moore's closing and how we felt like, we felt, just the two of us, we were devastated. And... So many other people express the same kind of emotion, and we talked about you know why people loved Morris and why how it had built up such a following and why it had built up such a following. You know, one of the things that I keep thinking about when I moved to Lexington, I was living down close on Main Street, close to Woodland Park, and everyone when I talked about moving, I was like, I'm gonna be able to walk to the library and I can walk to Moore's Bookshop. Like, I was so excited because <laughs> both of those were within walking range, and everyone, most people looked at me like I was crazy, but the people who know me the, the best knew why that was such a big deal. And Morris, the shop became this sort of haven at a time where I was transition, you know, transitioning to moving here and coming out, and I love books. Books have always been this source of comfort, but also conversation, a way to learn, a way to explore. I've attended, you know, I've attended readings there. I've attended the other kinds of events they've held. And it didn't, the thing that I've noticed about them, it didn't matter if it was a poetry reading or a burger (laughs) cook-off, you know, or a farm-to-table meal with one of the chefs or a musical group came in and they were hosting them. It, whatever group or sector of the community was drawn in and everyone felt like they were part they were there together and they were part of the community and they felt like they belonged and they you know they had several events where there were all different groups from the community there at the same time and it was just it was just this place where everyone fit and everyone belonged and you know Jay and I talked about should we do this can we do this 
are we crazy okay let's try to do it we want to do it how do we want it to look so we we've you know we spent a lot of time talking about what is most important to us and we see it as a community space we want it to be a community space um books are things that can bring people together i think that reading is integral to a person's development and so I think the bookshop itself can become something that can help anchor the community. And I know that, you know, we are, Lexington is so fortunate to have some wonderful independent bookshops. Um, and so, you know, we talked about, is there still room for another independent bookshop? And so we think there is, and we want to be, you know, we want people to come in and be excited to tell us about their day or what they're reading or you know, what happened at work or school or whatever else. We just, you know, we want to have that sense of community. And we're both from Appalachia. So for us, that front porch kind of community, let's get together and sit on the porch and talk, is just a huge part of who we are. And so we're right now working to get in a brick and mortar. We've been doing pop-up events. And so we, we have a couple more scheduled this month and we're booked the last three weeks of July. And... We hope to be in a physical location by September. We've got a couple of locations we've been looking at. I've been working with the people who lease those. And so we're close. We've got some work left to do to try to get there, but we're excited and we've got a lot planned. So it's gonna be a hit the ground running kind of thing. <laughs> so we're excited, but we're excited. We, the support has been incredible and so we're just, I think we're very fortunate to be able to have that kind of support and to be able to do this and we want to do it for the community and I think it's going to be a really good thing. So what can we expect to see from you next? I have a manuscript I've just finished which we've talked a little bit about and I am working on, I'm not sure if it's going to be a collection of essays or a memoir, but I'm working on some nonfiction, and I also have some short story ideas rolling around in my head. And the other thing that I'm working on, I'm not sure yet if it, I, I'm, I think it's poetry. I'm telling myself it's poetry. I'm playing with form a lot. And so it could end up being prose. <laughs> but I think, I think it's poetry. It feels like poetry. Thanks for chatting with me today, Savannah. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. You can purchase the anthologies that Savannah's published in from Briar Books or directly from the publishers. You can also keep up to date with Briar Books on their website, briarbooks.com, or follow them on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Tune in to Kick-Ass Kentucky Women Writers next month when we'll be chatting with the writer whose love poem to Lexington brought over 200 people from all walks of life, including me, to the tattoo parlor, Dr. Bianca Spriggs. I'm your host, Frankie Wolf. Thanks for listening.